Georgia Case Law Podcast. Ryan Locke, show them how we break it down like that. For the lawyers, come and tune in right away. I know that you may not have time to read every case for the latest criminal defense and personal injuries from appellate courts. Oh, yeah, this is what you need every week. All my lawyers, where you at? This is Georgia Case Law Podcast. Let's go. Ryan Locke. Hey everyone, it's Ryan Locke. I represent people who have been injured, people who have been wrongfully convicted from my office in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is another catch-up episode. Uh, So if you didn't listen to the last one, I had a reading injury and I was laying in bed reading, somehow pinched a a nerve in my neck and was waylaid for a bit. And now I'm back, back in the saddle and I'm trying to catch up with the cases that we haven't covered. The plan for this episode is the same as the last one where we just talk about cases, and if the cases are boring, then we'll skip them, and if the issues are boring, then we'll skip them, and so we'll just talk about fun stuff and get going. I'm also going to be drinking a beer while I'm doing it, and when we're out of beer, then we'll stop. And so this one is a a Three Taverns Bright Day Coming. It's a hazy IPA. It's 5.5%. 12 ounces. And it looks great. Here's a, uh, I don't know if you can hear, I'm going to drink it from a cup. So here's a little pouring sound. And uh, it looks, it looks particularly hazy. But it seems like everyone, everyone's coming out with a hazy IPA now. Sweetwater just, just put out a new one. And it, I, I think that's the, uh, the kind of the beer of the moment is a hazy IPA. Maybe for the next episode, I'll, I'll move out of Decatur. I'll drink a beer that was not brewed in Decatur. But yesterday was, uh, what did I drink the other day? Duh, is the Wild Heaven over in Decatur, and this one's Three Towers, also in Decatur. All right, so let's start with Harrison versus the state. This is a Supreme Court case. March 1st, 2021 is when this one dropped. Case number is S20A1104. This is either one of the first or the first Justice LaGrua opinions, and so that's exciting. And uh, here's what happened. Long story short, defendant Harrison shot his wife, Heather, after a fight. The She was shot in the head. And in the months before he shot her, she had been complaining to her friends that defendant Harrison had been jealous and possessive and controlling and that she was planning on divorcing him. And the night she was killed, she texted three friends that they were fighting because she had told him that she was leaving him. And what happens is Heather calls one of her friends and says, hey, come to the house because Kevin's not going to let me leave. The friend shows up and the house is cordoned off by police tape and there's an ambulance leaving for the hospital. And oh no, Heather's been shot. And so the police interrogate Harrison. And at first he says the gun discharged when he tried to take it off. Story number two was that the gun was on his hip and it popped out of the holster when he walked into a door frame and he accidentally pulled the trigger when he tried to catch it. And he actually attempted to recreate this but was not able to make the gun fall out that way. And then the officers told him, what you're saying is not that consistent with the evidence we have. And then he said, I was angry because I thought Heather had cheated and I pulled the gun out to scare her. And pulling the trigger was just a reaction. And uh, that was it. And he uh, was convicted. 
the oh the other the other fact is that he the night of the shooting defendant harrison called his friend and asked him about traveling to mexico so not great facts what i want to talk about in this case is an interesting idea by the trial lawyer trial court ultimately denied it but it's an interesting ask the the trial lawyer wanted a jury instruction that felony murder is not a lesser included offense of malice murder and i think this is interesting because it's about the idea or i guess the worry that criminal defense lawyers have that in these kind of cases where the jury can choose between malice murder that it's that someone was killed with malice aforethought or felony murder just that someone died during the commission of a felony and i forget what the other crime was charged but i'm guessing it was ag assault or ag battery or something like that that the jury may think felony murder is actually less serious than malice murder and so the punishment must be less serious and so maybe that's a compromise area where they say we don't want we don't think he intended to kill her maybe some people think that other people think no i do think he intended to kill her and they pick felony murder as like a middle ground. And so it is legally accurate to say that, that felony murder is not a lesser included offense of malice murder. But the for the jury instruction to be warranted, it has to be precisely adjusted to some principle involved in the case. That's from Barron versus State. Precisely adjusted to some principle involved in the case. And the Supreme Court said it's legally accurate to say that felony murder is not a lesser included offense of malice murder, but the court's instructions did not indicate otherwise. And the court clearly instructed the jury that punishment is not to be considered in its deliberations. So it was not error to not tell the jury that felony murder is not a lesser included of malice murder. It's an interesting idea about trying to get the jury to think about to, to disincentivize them from trying to make some sort of compromise verdict that is going to end up not really making a difference. And so I want to talk about that because I liked that idea. The other the other claims here were a sufficiency of the evidence claim, which didn't work, and a that the trial court erred in letting the state introduce some prior difficulties, and that did not work either. All right. Next case is versus the state. This one is a March 1st, uh, 2021 case two. Case number S20A1196. All right, so here's what happens in Giolenios. Defendant Giolenios met Carrie Overseth online when she was living in Montana with her husband. And Giolenios and Carrie developed this long-distance relationship. Giolenios lived here in Georgia. And so Carrie came here to see her father, met Giolenios in person, and then the relationship became sexual. And when she was here, Giolenios told her that he was never without his guns and that if she slept with her husband again, that he would kill them both. She went back to Montana, and Giolenios told her, hey, you should leave her husband, and he sent her gifts. In the meantime, she becomes pregnant with her husband's child. They come back to Georgia, her, Carrie Overseth, and her husband, whose name, first name is Seth. 
and so Seth over Seth, which seems, I mean, that it, the name seems fake, but here's what happens to him. They, so they come and visit, and Seth stays with Carrie's father, and Carrie stays with her sister. Comes to the sister's house, bangs on the windows. The Carrie tells him, hey, look, I'm going back to Montana with my husband. And then he texts her, it's a good thing, you and I. And then he texts her, hey, the shit that holds you back, I will remove. Seth over Seth leaves the father's house at 10 p.m. to walk the dog, and he never comes back. At 10.30, a neighbor hears a bang. Carrie's father goes looking and finds over Seth's dead body near the house with a bullet wound in the forehead. Carrie tells police about, police find him, and he says, I don't remember where I was that previous night. He shows up to the burial with dead flowers and then leaves a package in Carrie's sister's backyard with cards and an invitation to a movie date. Now that gets him arrested for stalking. And then he's later arrested for murder after the firearms examiner finds that a bullet belonging to a the the a, a bullet found in the body matches shell casings in Giolenios's house and then the some phone records place him in the location. And they Giolenios on appeal raises a fair amount of stuff. A couple interesting things is this with this cell phone stuff and so um, a cop gets the cell phone records directly from verizon including cell phone tower location data by filling out this emergency situation disclosure form and says that the request potentially involves danger and that the subject is a murder suspect and then verizon and, and then verizon sends over this data and the obviously this is in violation of Carpenter, the uh, Supreme Court case, uh, U.S. Supreme Court case that requires a warrant to get that kind of information. At the time in 2017, there was no Georgia case law that said that was a search under the Fourth Amendment. And here, the the trial court denied the motion to suppress, and so that was appealed. And the Supreme Court, Georgia Supreme Court, affirms. And what they say is that. The because the crime scene presented very little evidence that this was a, this was the only reliable means to locate Giolenios, and the officer made this good faith belief in this good faith request to Verizon while the suspect was armed and dangerous, and exclusion of this evidence would have little, if any, effect in deterring future violations. And so there is no error. The court was relying on a case called Lofton that says there's no deterrent value in excluding evidence obtained by police acting with an objectively reasonable good faith belief that their conduct was lawful based on reasonable reliance on a applicable federal statute or binding appellate precedent. Spears Hazy. The, a carp, so an interesting Carpenter issue there. Another interesting issue is when this information was admitted against him, they did not bring a witness, the state did not bring a witness to testify about it. And you know, an, another Supreme Court banger, Melendez-Diaz, says that, hey, an authenticating records custodian has to testify and be subject to cross-examination under the Confrontation Clause. 
And and so you would think our right, for the you know someone from Verizon would have to come and testify about these records. But Supreme Court said that the confrontation clause is not implicated because the records here are non-testimonial. And this is an important point that the confrontation clause applies to testimonial things. So like in Melendez-Diaz, the documents at issue were these certificates and the sole purpose of those documents were test was testimonial. But here, the cell phone records are kept in the normal course of Verizon's business and they were not prepared to for later use prosecuting someone. And so they are not testimonial. The court also found meaningful that the state's expert witness who interpreted these records was available for cross-examination. And you know, that was pretty good, you know, a pretty good access to be able to challenge the records. There was some, there were a couple other things going in here. One thing, one last thing I want to talk about, I guess two things. One is a little pet peeve of mine, which is the rule of completeness. And in OCGA 24.8.822, uh, that's where the rule of completeness is. And that rule says that if you, if a party is introducing portions of statements out of context, then you can, the other party can introduce at the time that the evidence is introduced, introduce the other parts of the statement to fairly put it in context. And my pet peeve is when prosecutors use the rule of completeness to try to get in like the entire thing. And, and that's not right. And that's what happens here. The, here, the, the defense wanted a witness's entire police interview to come into evidence after he referred to his statement to the police. And the, and so what the Supreme Court said was, hey, look, the rule of completeness does not make admissible parts of a statement that are irrelevant to the parts of the statement introduced into evidence by the opposing party. So it, it permits only additional material that is relevant and is necessary to explain the portion that's already introduced. And in fact, all right, next up is Jones versus the state. This is a March 1st, 2021, case number S20A1245. And this is actually one of my cases. And so I can tell you what happened and then we can talk about how I lost it. In this case, my client Jones and his stepbrother Price and some others, they drove up from Florida to Georgia to attend a car show. And after the car show, everyone, this occurred in Cairo, and so everyone gathers in the parking lot of this Cairo gas station, and it's like wall-to-wall, -wall, it, it's outside, like by the pumps, but it's just wall-to-wall -wall people. And so people are drinking, people are playing music from their cars, everyone's standing around talking. It's just a real thick party. And so an argument breaks out and victim Hill punches Price, my, my client's, I believe, cousin. And then my client pulls a gun and fires at Hill. This occurs in maybe a second and a half. And they're right in the middle of this throng of people. And it just so happened that one someone at the party was just recording the just was recording the, the number of people that was happening and managed to catch this interaction on the video. And so the entire you know, the, the entire shooting interaction is recorded because it and it happens pretty fast. And on the video, you can see very clearly this other guy punched price. 
and then my client will pull out his gun and then shoot the guy who punched him. And so what we tried to float are a couple different claims and none of them worked. One is we tried to argue that the evidence was insufficient to sustain some of the aggravated assault convictions. So what happened is, you know, my client started shooting the gun and then everyone just went running. And then there's some evidence that there were that there were other shooters, that there was some evidence that there was this like a second round of gunshots, like all this stuff. And so we tried to argue that it was the aggravated and what the state proved at trial was that when my client started shooting the gun at the other guy, he hit the other guy, but then he also hit some bystanders. And we tried to argue that the there was some evidence that someone else could have fired these the second round of gunshots and hit these other people. And it turned out that the Supreme Court did not believe us. They said, yes, there's some evidence, but the jury was free to reject that hypothesis. We lose that. The second one, our real core issue, was that the trial court denied the request, the trial, trial lawyer's request, to instruct the jury on the defense of justification. And, you know, that was the kind of core defense at trial, that Price gets, my client's cousin gets punched in the face, and then my client immediately pulls out his gun and defends him by shooting. And there was some evidence that the that this was potentially a gang issue, that there were these other people there who belonged to a rival gang, and the puncher is one of them, and that everyone was pissed at my client and his crew because they were from out of town, and they show up and start showing out at this party, and they're throwing money around and all this kind of thing. And the Supreme Court said that you know the evidence supporting a self-defense charge was meager at best, thanks, Justice Lagura, meager at best, but also nothing in the video shows that Price or Jones was in such danger that Jones could reasonably believe it was necessary to immediately fire his gun at Hill. And a big problem at trial and at the the motion for new trial, which a different lawyer handled before they hired me, a big problem for us was that Jones never testified. And so we were never able to get in you know, any evidence from my client's perspective to show what the you know, you know what his thinking was in pulling out the gun and immediately firing and any facts that would show that it was necessary to do that. And the facts that we wanted to show was all this these rival gang members and being in the middle of a throng of people and that they reasonably feared for their lives because this was the start of the attack. But the video evidence just did not really bear that out. Last thing was we wanted, we claimed that the trial lawyer was ineffective for not doing some social media investigation and finding some gang photos showing that people in the crowd were gang members, including the deceased victim. And a Supreme Court did not bite on this. They said, one, the fact that other evidence would have been helpful is not sufficient to render trial counsel's performance deficient, which I disagree with. And then they also said the photos would have, would have been a marginal probative value. 
And, you know, maybe that's true, but it, you know, it was material to our client's defense and material to the theory of the case. There you go. Anyway, so that is Jones versus the state. That one was March 1st. Next up is Butler versus the state and Avery versus the state. These are March 1st, 2021. Case numbers S20A 1297 and S20A 1298. And so this is essentially a robbery at, well, a murder, but a murder and robbery at someone's house. And so Jordan and Chad Collins were at their sister's house, and they invite over two women they meet on an app called Plenty of Fish. And Chad, who survived, testified that the women acted strangely, and they asked questions about the layout of the house. And so as Jordan tried to leave with the women... Chad heard the back door slam, a male voice, and a gunshot. And so he goes out and he sees Jordan lying on the patio. And then Chad gets shot. Jordan dies, but Chad survives. And uh, Jordan's wounds were from both a shotgun and a handgun. And that's important because he obviously can't be shooting a shotgun and a handgun at the same time. Probably. Maybe if you're like, I'm trying to think if in any of the Terminator movies, if Arnold ever shot a shotgun and a handgun at the same time. I guess maybe theoretically you could, but it would probably be hard. They end up charging these two guys, Butler and McGee and, and Avery with this stuff because McGee pleads out, pleads to aggravated assault. And then the one of the, the McGee was one of the women. And then the other woman testifies or, or McGee testifies that the other woman introduced her to Butler and Avery, who are high ranking members of the Bloods. And that pool, the other woman, created a Plenty of Fish account for McGee for escorting. And then they decide to meet up with Jordan after seeing his profile. And Avery and Butler, the two men, follow them for protection. But then they end up shooting one of the guys and stealing their stuff. Shooting both of them, murdering one and stealing their stuff. So the important thing, the thing I want to talk about for this case is this kind of, they were charged among other things, with uh, violations of the Street Gang Act. And obviously the Street Gang Act is something that is super broad. And here, the, the Avery and McGee argued that the state was unable to prove that these specific acts were in furtherance of the interests of the gang, which is one of the things they have to prove a Street Gang Act violation. They have to establish the existence of the gang, the defendant's association, and that the defendant committed a list of these criminal offenses in, in to intended to further the interests of the gang. And the and what the court held was that the evidence was sufficient to establish a nexus between the crimes and the intent to further the interest of the gang because there's evidence that the gang used prostitution and robbery of Johns to finance the gang and the, that and these shootings resulted from that sort of activity. And so here, what I find interesting is you're able to find a nexus between these activities and what the gang is doing, even though there's not any particular evidence, any specific evidence to show that this specific thing that you're doing is in furtherance of the gang. And you know, I think that you know, what it's shaping out to be is that there are things that categorically are going to be in furtherance of the gang. And so really any any time 
you're in a gang and you're robbing, you're using prostitution and robbery, that's going to be, the court is going to find a nexus, I guess, unless there's, you know, some type of really strong evidence to show that this particular time was not. But it almost seems like the default is going to be, yeah, the state can prove a nexus just by showing that gangs do these kind of things, you're a member of a gang, and you're doing that kind of thing, which I don't, I think is kind of wrong, but here we are. The other kind of interesting thing that was happening is the Poole's interrogation was introduced and an officer was intimidating Poole by saying, I know that you and the other woman didn't kill these guys, but because you're party to a crime, at this point you're charged just the same as if you stood there and pulled the trigger yourself. The No one objected to it, but on appeal... It was raised as an as the police officer commenting on the ultimate issue. The Supreme Court did not agree. Supreme Court said that comments for the purpose of eliciting a response from a suspect are not improper opinion testimony. That's from a case, Butler versus State. And the current evidence code does not generally prohibit lay witnesses from testifying on ultimate issue grounds. So here there was no error to admit this statement because... What the officer was saying was not ultimate issue opinion testimony because it wasn't an opinion. And so he's just a lay witnesses talking about what's potentially an ultimate issue, but that's okay. All right. So that was uh, Butler versus the state, Avery versus the state, March 1st, 2021. All right, guys, so you know what that sound means. It means that my two-year-old wants dinner. I finished with this beer. And we'll talk about the rest of the cases from this week some other time. I'm going to go cook some chicken, and y'all have a great time. Remember to like and subscribe, et cetera, et cetera. Tell someone about it, blah, blah, blah. See you next time.